you would turn to Acts chapter 2. We're spending our two first Sundays back in here together, kind of regrouping as a church, hopefully, refocusing as a church. And last week, we laid a foundation. We laid the foundation for the future, and the foundation is the sufficiency of Scripture. If you were not here last Sunday, if you did not listen to that message last Sunday, then it is imperative that you go back and you listen to that, that message on the sufficiency of Scripture. It is vitally, vitally important to who we are, who we want to be, where we're heading, and where we want to be. The grand enemy, as we saw last week, of the sufficiency of Scripture is a word called pragmatism. Pragmatism. If it works, quote-unquote works, it must be right. And when we're pragmatists instead of biblicists in our theology and in our methodology, we don't have any solid foundation to erect the structure of a New Testament church on. You see, if we're pragmatists, we're going we're to go everywhere the wind blows. We're going to be looking out there for direction at other churches, at other preachers, at other teachers. And we're going to be shifting with every wind of idea and doctrine and methodology out there. We're going to shift with whatever is working. If we're pragmatists instead of biblicists in our theology, what we believe about God, and in our methodology, what we do with that belief, then we're going to shift and, and we will not be able to erect a solid structure on that type of foundation. So we have to, as we saw last week, reject the draw of pragmatism, the temptation of pragmatism, and embrace the sufficiency of Scripture. With that foundation laid, today we want to erect that structure on that foundation. This is nothing new. You've been in Acts chapter 2 multiple times. We're going to look at verses 42 to 47 yet again. There's a big banner out in the hall that unfolds this passage of Scripture for you. What, why we keep going back to this passage of Scripture is because when you think of church, I don't want you to think of what you see on television. When you think of church, I don't want you to think about some church in town or in our area. When you think about church, I want you to think about Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. So we're going to keep hammering this over and over and over and over again until you begin to think of church as New Testament and not 21st century America. So we're going back to this passage of Scripture again, but I want us to look at it from a little different angle. The other times we've looked at this passage of Scripture, we've been looking at it as an individually applied passage of Scripture. So we say, the early church was characterized by maturing in the Word. How, is, how can you, as an individual, mature in the Word of God? How can you, as an individual, structure your life as a Christian around the Word of God. And when we as individuals do that, guess what happens to our families? They begin to be structured around the Word of God, and they begin to mature in the Word of God. And when our families begin to do that, guess what happens here? The church begins to do that. So we've been looking at it kind of from a, a bottom-up kind of viewpoint. Meaningful fellowship. How do we apply that to the individual? Making supplication. How do we apply that to the individual? But this morning, I want us to come at these seven these seven qualities of a New Testament church from another angle, instead of the individual, I want us to think about this corporately. Corporately. When we get together to worship together corporately, 
What does a New Testament church look like? We know what a New Testament Christian and a New Testament church should look like as an individual. What should this look like? That's what we're going to see this morning in Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. And we're going to see the same seven qualities. We're going to apply them to the church corporately. The first thing that it would look like is that the Scriptures must be central. The Scriptures will be central. In verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, it says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, we've called this maturing in the Word. The early church was devoted to the teaching of the apostles. The teaching of the apostles became the New Testament. We've discussed what that looks like for us as individuals. We've given you Bible reading plans. We've put out plus one videos to help give you advice on how to read the Bible more productively, giving you many options to read the Bible as an individual. But what does this look like for us as a church? Well, we fast forward a few decades and we see what it was looking like in the church in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy as he is instructing him on how to lead a New Testament church. He says, until I come, give attention, give attention to this, to the public reading of Scripture. To the public reading of scripture of course we want private reading of scripture but paul's specifically saying until i come back to visit this church timothy you give attention to publicly reading scripture to exhortation which is unfolding that scripture and applying that scripture and challenging people with that scripture and teaching expositing that scripture just showing what that scripture means exposing the truth of the word So until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. Be absorbed in Scripture, exhortation, teaching, using your gift, Timothy, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So what does the New Testament church look like corporately that focuses on the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, and on Scripture? It looks like we open the Bible up and we read passages of Scripture from the Bible Publicly. Now, here's what we as 21st century Americans do when somebody opens up the Bible and starts reading. A lot of us, a lot of the time, begin to think about other things. Say it ain't so. You're all nodding yes because you check out, don't you? I mean, I've heard that. I've heard Mary's praise before, so carry on. When that's over and Tom begins the drum beat or the introductory chord on the piano, then I'm back with you for a little while. Pastor stands up, and I've watched this. This is very frustrating to me. Let me just give you a little frustration here. I watched the, the little live thingy that I'm not a huge fan of. We're thankful for it, but, you know, it's better if you can to be here, if at all possible. We're grateful you can watch at home if you're compromised, but it, don't use that as a crutch to just 
Well, I don't feel like getting out of my PJs this morning. I told somebody, I'm going to preach from my PJs from my living room one Sunday morning and live stream it into y'all. See how that goes. Don't use it as a crutch. If you need it, use it, but don't use it as a crutch just because you don't want to get out. It's a little nippy outside, so we won't come out. But here's what I see. You see those little eyeballs watching? The moment I start reading a passage of Scripture, if it's lengthy, the eyeballs start going away. Let me, let me just say something. The most important part of the sermon is not what I say about the Scriptures. The most important part of the sermon is the Scripture. Because what I say about the Scripture could potentially be off. I don't, we don't ever want that to be the case. But I'm not infallible, nor is the Pope. I'll throw that in as a side note. Men are not infallible. But when we read the Scriptures... That is as if God Himself is speaking to us. So we ought to see the eyeballs increase on the live stream when we read Scripture. We ought to see heads raise and focus together when we read the Scripture. Reading Scripture ought to be a part of us getting together and worshiping because it is God's inerrant, infallible, sufficient Word. So we want corporate worship to look like Scripture being read. Yes, Scripture being exhorted. And Scripture being taught. The Scriptures must be central. Secondly, fellowship in this New Testament church, corporately speaking, is essential. Fellowship is essential. You see how we miss this when churches were built in this time frame. When this church building was built. You notice how small the foyer is? It's just meant to block the cold, not together. You know one of the crises we've had since I've been here is when we try to get together for a meal as we can't all fit in the fellowship hall. So somebody has to be left out or crowded. There's just a time period in the church where fellowship was not the, that important. But the New Testament church, fellowship is essential. Listen to the second part of verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They were continually devoting themselves to the teaching and they were continually devoting themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. The scriptures were not all they were devoted to. They were devoted to one another, and we've called this meaningful fellowship as we think about the individual. And that early church devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to each other. They enjoyed fellowship over meals in homes as they broke bread together. And we've discussed how this looks as individuals. It looks like me. It looks like you. It looks like us being intentional about showing hospitality. According to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect 
to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Something is missing in the Christian life. Something is missing in the Christian church. Something is missing in our discipleship strategies without hospitality. Without open doors, there's not really open lives. Fellowship. Meaningful fellowship is essential. What does this look like in our context? We meet at 10 o'clock. There's two positives to that. One positive is, I don't have to let you out of here in time for Sunday school. That's a positive for me. It may not be for you. At 8.30, I was always getting the, the stare from somebody like, Sunday school's waiting. 11 o'clock, I'm always getting a stare from somebody, buffet is waiting. You know, it's like always something's waiting. It's like a cattle shoot. We come in, we run through the program, and we get out of here on time so we can get to the next thing. But now I've got you. (laughs) Very, 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 very few churches meet for just an hour anymore anyway. Hour and 15, hour and a half. You should go listen to some of my sermons previous 2017. They were all an hour long. I've been giving you much grace. But we meet at 10 o'clock and everybody leaves together. Some people don't cut out at 9.30 or 10 before Sunday school. Some people don't cut out right after Sunday school. They, They all come together. They all leave together. And here's what that enables you to do. It enables you to look around this place and say... Who am I going to go eat with today? Or who am I going to invite to my house next Sunday? And, and the tendency there is to always be in that clique of people that you're comfortable with, and there's, there's benefit to that. You need to be with those people you're comfortable with so you can have uncomfortable conversations if necessary. You know each other. But, but branch out and look for that person. Look for that person that you can include and utilize worship as an avenue to fellowship. Continue, continue worship after we shut down the lights here by gathering and eating together somewhere. And not to talk about football, but to talk about what you heard in the message, what God is doing. Don't turn it into a gossip session. Can you believe? Some people, the only notes they take are the negative things, that, you know, and then they're busy bodies about it all week. No, that's not the kind of fellowship we're talking about. That's not fellowship. But to talk about what God's doing in your life. Fellowship is essential. Utilize opportunities. Create opportunities. Be intentional. Number three, in a New Testament church, corporately, prayer is more than a transition. Verse 42 says they were continuing, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So they were devoting themselves to the Word. They were devoting themselves to fellowship over bread. They were devoting themselves to prayer. We've called this making supplication. We've challenged you to pray as individuals. We've given you plus one prayer guides. And what does it look like corporately for prayer to be more than a transition? 
Fast forward a few decades to 1 Timothy 2. Paul's giving Timothy instructions not only on how to handle the word, but also how to pray corporately. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 8. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath, and dissension. Here's what prayer looks like corporately. It looks like more than a transition. What do I mean by more than a transition? You know when we pray, when somebody's sneaking up to the Advent candle, that's when we pray. So that when you open your eyes, it's like a ma- something magical happened. They just materialized. Where'd they come from? And then, you know, when I'm supposed to be sneaking up here and, and we're wrapping up the time of worship, we, we pray and then preacher just sneaks up here and the band just disappears it's amazing how it happens i'm sure it's how it was in the new testament church you know we want to mask the transitions to be perfectly smooth so prayer being more than a transition and actually being prayer to god strategically guided spending some time is in prayer. It's another benefit to being together. We're not in that time crunch. We've talked about this. They, the, the ministers will tell you we've talked about this for two years at least. How can we incorporate some kind of corporate prayer into the service that's more than a transition? We don't have time. We've got to get out get Sunday school. We've got to get out and get to the buffet. We've got a time crunch. How do we incorporate prayer without cutting music or cutting sermon? That ain't happening. Now we have time to pray. And some of you are going, but if lost people come in and we're praying, that's so uncomfortable. You know that most lost people kind of think that when Christians get together, they pray? I think they come in here expecting the church to pray. And then we want to make it super comfortable so we don't. And they leave going, wait a minute. I thought... The church was characterized by prayer. There's going to be some time for us to focus on prayer. To really pray together corporately as a church. Yes, we need to pray individually. And be unified in our prayers individually throughout the week. But we need to pray together as a church. Number four, testimony. Verse 43 says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. They kept feeling a sense of awe. Wow. Can you believe what God is doing? They kept feeling a sense of awe. And many, many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Now we have called this, as we think about the individual, as we think about our Christian lives, we've called this miracles performed. And you've been challenged to go and be the miracle. 
Find someone that you can be the hands of Jesus for, the feet of Jesus for, the lips of Jesus for. Find someone that you can be personally involved in their life and engage them and be a miracle in their life, a living, real, practical miracle. That's on the individual level. But what does that look like corporately? For, for us to feel a sense of awe, listen, for us to feel a sense of awe, we need to know the awesome things that are happening. And without somebody sharing the awesome things that are happening, people don't know about the awesome things that are happening and they're not in awe. Many of us have no clue what's going on throughout the week with individuals who are engaging lost people, sharing the gospel with lost people, leading lost people through the scriptures towards Christ. Many people, most people don't know what's going on in discipleship groups as they're engaging people and in other types of groups as they're going out into the community and trying to engage those who are lost who, who may have specific needs. They're just clueless. We need to have a way to share what God is doing in us and through us. We need to have a way to hear what God is doing in others and through others. So here's what, here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want to challenge you to keep your eyes and your ears open. Pay attention. What is God up to? What is God doing through this person, through me, through this discipleship group, through my discipleship group, through this Sunday school group or Bible study group? What is He doing? Keep your eyes and your ears open. And then... Keep your mouth open. Now, that's something you don't hear very often, and we don't need to hear very often, honestly. In many words, there's much offense. My mother always told me it's better to keep your mouth closed and let people think you're a fool than to open it and remove all the doubt. So mine and Mandy's second date, she threatened to call things off if I didn't start talking. We need to keep that mouth shut. Most of the time. Most likely. But we, we need to also open it sometimes. When we have opened our eyes and ears and we see what God is doing, we need to be willing to open our mouth and share what God is doing. We need to be willing to talk about what God is doing. And then, we need to open up that experience to others. We need to open our eyes and ears and see what God's doing. We need to open our mouth and share what God's doing. And we need to open up that experience to others. So we need to give testimony. Could you see that early church gathering together? And they're like, please pray for so-and-so. God has opened doors for me to share the gospel with them. God has opened doors for me to minister to them, to reach out to them, to touch them in this way. And this is how God is working. And then all spreads throughout the congregation because they see that God is actually doing something. God actually is moving in hearts. And God actually is moving in lives. We can be the miracle as individuals. And then we can celebrate those miracles when we come together if we will just open up. So your job is to open your eyes and your ears and then open up your mouths and let us know what's going on so that we can formulate a way for you to open that up for others to experience corporately. So that we can celebrate together. Number five, ministry to the body. Verse 44. All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. 
They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They were caring for the brethren. Care for the brethren is critical in the Scriptures. Listen to 1 Peter 1.22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. 1 Peter 2.17 Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Love the brotherhood. 1 Peter 3.8 To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Do you see a theme here in Peter's writings and throughout all of the New Testament that love for the brethren, love for one another, ministry to one another, reaching horizontally across to one another is absolutely essential for the New Testament church to function. There are roughly a hundred one another verses in the New Testament. Early church very practically love one another, as we see in Acts chapter 2. They sold their possessions, they sold their goods, they distributed them to each other as they had need. This is not socialism, this is not communism, this is not Rome coming in and saying, surrender your goods so that we can do what's right with those goods. If you hear a preacher use this to defend socialism in any shape, form, or fashion, please be a Berean and either turn him off Or let him know. He needs to study his Bible. Nobody is prompting these people to do this but the Holy Spirit. Their love for one another and the Holy Spirit within them allowed them to see the needs of one another. And they willingly sold their lands. They sold their goods and they distributed those proceeds to all as anyone had need. And then there was a couple of folks who decided they were going to try to get the, the plaque on the end of the pew, you know, without giving the whole donation. So they sold their property and said, let's tell them we're giving it all, but let's keep back some for ourselves. So Ananias walks in, puts his offering on the altar, and and Peter says, is is this all that you received from the property? He says, absolutely. And he drops dead. Why would you lie to the Holy Spirit, Ananias? And and Peter says, before the land was sold, was it not yours to do with as you see fit? Why do you want to lie? And Sapphira comes in, same thing happens to her. The lamb was theirs. They willingly sold it. They could have kept back however much they wanted to keep back and give whatever they wanted to give. The problem was they lied. And this is a pattern throughout this church of them selling and giving and distributing to each other. And then, you know, we find a few decades later, we find these folks poor. They've given all their stuff away, and now they're like, whoops, we're poor now. And I'm sure they were some holier than thou, Saying, well, that wasn't very wise. I mean, Dave Ramsey stepped in. That wasn't very wise to give away all of that. You should have saved back six months' supply. Shame on you. Irresponsible Christians who did what Christians do. You know, it's never unwise to do what Jesus tells us to do. Even if it seems unwise it's never unwise to do what Jesus tells us to do and they end up poor and most of the time in the New Testament when the word poor is used you know who it's talking about? the church in Jerusalem 
They had liquidated all their assets. Now they're poor, and churches in Macedonia are sending gifts to them and being blessed and being a blessing. And God just works it all out. We need to be looking horizontally. How can we be the hands and feet to Jesus to people that are in this congregation? One of my first questions to people who come begging for money here or begging for things is where do you go to church? Because I'm pretty sure if you plug into a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church, they will take care of you. In Acts 4, 32 to 35, the congregation of those who believed, they were of one heart, they were of one soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. This was a church that was ministering horizontally, characterized by love for the brethren, fulfilling what Jesus promised in John 13, 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you and that you also love one another. By this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We need to be in the Word corporately. We need to be fellowshipping. We need to be praying. We need to be testifying to what God is doing. We need to be ministering together. Number six, we need to have God-centered worship. Verse 47, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. We've called this magnifying God. As individuals, it looks like being a living sacrifice. Refusing to be conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. But what does this look like corporately? Corporately, it looks like worship in spirit and in truth. John 4, 23-24, Jesus told the Samaritan woman, An hour is coming, and now is, where the true worshipers, the true worshipers, not those who pretend to worship, not those who have the identification as worshipers, but the, the true worshipers in the eyes of God, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Listen to me. True worship is spirit worship. It's in the spirit. It's emotional You see these churches? Every word of every song is thoroughly biblical. But you have to do a double take to know if you walked into a funeral home or a worship service. Everything is absolutely 110% biblical, but we got to shake folks to make sure they haven't been embalmed. And some of us are real comfortable with that because it's so reverent. We use the word reverent sometimes to refer to dead reverent let me see if it's not a if it's not approved of by god it's not reverent no matter how dignified it may seem worship in spirit there's emotion and it's worship in truth where the words are saturated with truth you go into other worship services and you got people flipping and flopping and jumping pews and running wild and it's an emotional basket case and they're singing the same four lyrics 78 times over and over and you're not even sure what they mean and and you wonder have i jumped into a circus or is this a worship service that's not that's not worship true worship 
is the mingling of spirit and truth. True worship is not either or. I go to the alive church where everybody's wild. I go to the reverent church where everybody's dead. No, it's not either or. It's both and. They come together. And it's worship in spirit and it's worship in truth. It is God-centered biblical lyrics that are sung with heartfelt emotion, not for the dopamine hit, but for God. It's Christ-exalting lyrics sung with passion for Christ. It's biblically sound lyrics sung with feeling for the truth. Worship. That's how we ought to be characterized here. Emotionally truthful. That's what worship is. Drop the preferences. Drop the opinions. Sing truth with emotion. That's worship. Lastly, Evangelism, disciple-making, and missions. Verse 47, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was a day-by-day thing where people were being saved. Not because they were building a church that appealed to the lost. But day-by-day they were going out and engaging the lost. And God, by His grace, through the working of the Holy Spirit, was bringing people to faith. And the Lord was adding to their number. What does this look like for the individual? We've talked about this a thousand and ten times, haven't we? What does it look like for the individual? Locally, it looks like you looking for, creating, and taking opportunities to share and disciple people who do not yet know Christ. It looks like you being involved in a discipleship group that is, that is set on including others and expanding and multiplying. That's what it looks like locally. For the individual globally, it looks like you praying that plus one prayer guide and for the missionaries that we support. It looks like you giving generously and sacrificially to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, either to individual missionaries that we're connected with or through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. It looks like you going as frequently and as far as you can possibly go. It's the bullseye. Remember, we've talked about the bullseye of our mission is evangelism, disciple-making, and missions. If we pour our energy into evangelism, disciple-making, and missions, then guess what's going to happen? We are going to mature in the Word of God. We can't help it. If we pour our energy into evangelism, disciple-making, and missions, we're going to fellowship and link arms together like never before. We're going to pray harder than ever before. We're going to see more miracles than ever before. We're going to minister to one another and hold one another up. We're going to be bringing praise to God for what He's doing. The bullseye is to pour our energy, our prayers, our time, our effort, our money into evangelism, missions, disciple-making, locally and globally. But what does this look like for us corporately? What does this look like for us as a church when we gather together? It looks like our church adopting evangelism, discipling, and missions as our bullseye so that everything we do feeds the mission. Now, we've introduced to you several months back and encouraged you to consider three bullseye books, we call them. And these books focus on 
the corporate gathering. It's not about individuals as much as it is about the church. And one of those books is called Evangelism. It's a little red book by Max Stiles. They're on the front pew up here. I was going to hold them up for you, but I chose not to. You've seen them before, I'm sure. Evangelism by Max Stiles. Corporate evangelism. The church working together to bring people to Jesus. Discipling by Mark Dever. How people can be disciple makers and be discipled in the local church. And then missions by Andy Johnson. How, a church, how our church as a whole can be better involved in the mission of Jesus Christ. So if you, haven't, if you have not read those three books... Please, please pick them up. We probably have some in the office that you can pick up. And don't read them alone. That's a waste of good energy. Don't read them alone. Read them with two or three other people and talk through them together. It looks like corporately shaping our minds as a church to be about evangelism, discipling, and missions as our bullseye. And it looks like corporately working together to pray Corporately working together to give. Corporately working together to go. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with praying together, giving together, and going off on volunteer short-term trips together. But there's a fourth element that is involved in the corporate church, and it is sending. Do you remember in Acts 13, they were praying together, and the Holy Spirit set apart Saul and Barnabas. And they laid their hands on them, and they sent them out. And they went on their first missionary journey, and they came back and reported to the church. Do you think they were happy about sending out Paul? Don't you think he was pretty vital to the church? think they were happy about sending out Barnabas? His name was Son of Encouragement. It meant Son of Encouragement, and he had already sold all of his property and given it to the poor. This guy was an encouragement to the church. So they're sending off one of their greatest leaders and one of their greatest encouragers. We don't send our least needed to the mission field. We send the most vital. We send that person that said, we just can't, we don't think we can do without them. We need to be about sending and being willing to release those who are sent. We need to locate those in our congregation who sense a calling. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. If you sense a calling to go to the ends of the earth, we need to be finding those people, getting behind those people, teaching those people, encouraging those people, and supporting those people to get them where they need to be and so that they can stay there. With that in mind, why don't we take a moment and hear a little testimony. You up for that? Okay. Green, yeah. Oh, wait. Hey, there we go. Good morning, church. How are we? Good. So have you seen my uh, missions hall yet? No? Okay, so at some point today, you're going to go, or in the future, those of you at home, you're going to go back here, and you're going to look at a hallway, and you're going to say, it's a hallway. That looks great, Brett. And I'm going to say thank you, because I worked very hard on that. Um, behind us, where the coffee is, is now um, a missions hall. It's got a big map that's wonderfully backlit. 
It's got iPads that Trey's put in, and it's got videos. It's got testimony videos from you all, um, from Miss Neva, and from Carrie, and from Hadley, and a bunch of others on the missions trips that you've been on. Uh, go back and look, if you would, at some point, and then tell me what a great job I did, because I need confirmation. It took a long time. We were back there a long time. Myself and Pete and Amber and the rest of the staff would come through and hold the wall up. And while we worked, and we were there a long, long time. Um, and so we had a prayer while we were working on the wall. So all these things. And we just said, God, what do we want to see happen when people come in here, when they interact with these things, when they look at this map, when they see the need? What do we want them to do? And we, our prayer really was that they would stop and ask God, where would you go? Where would you go? What would you do? And that was our heart. That really was our heart. We'd sit in that hallway, and we eat our Arby's, and we would just pray, God, would you stir up the hearts of the people of this church so they would go wherever it was that you were willing to call them to and that they would say yes. Now, the thing about prayers is they're real easy to pray for other people until one day you realize you're praying that God would waken the hearts of the people that you love, but you don't offer God your own heart. And you don't, you're not willing to say yes to whatever it is. You're just praying that God would waken and send others. Until one day you realize maybe that's not what God's quite saying. He was saying pray for others, but he also wanted to know the same question I was praying for you, would I pray for myself? Where will you go? And are you willing? And the answer was, yes. Yes, I am. And would I go? Yes, I will. And so, I am. Um, I'm not going away today, by the way, so you're stuck with me for a little bit, just so you can take the little pressure valve off of that. Um, I and my family and some friends maybe here are going, um, I'm going to France, to Lille, to work with uh, refugees, uh, with an organization called IAFR, was International Association for Refugees. Uh, my heart was changed forever from my trip to Germany. I know you go on a mission trip and you say, oh, you delicious, you would never come home. But it, for me, I wish I hadn't. Not that I don't love you. I do. I love this town and I love this church. But my heart never came back. And when you know that God is calling, and when God is stirring you up, the only answer is yes. Right? You have to say yes. Otherwise, you know that you had said no, you are resisting the Holy Spirit, and you will always wonder what could have been if you had just said yes. And so, we are taking a step of faith. We are becoming self-supporting missionaries, um, so we want to talk about that later. We can. Uh, but we know God is faithful because what God calls you to, God provides. And so we, my family, we are going, um, not tomorrow, 
not anytime quite soon, hopefully in the next, in the next year, what that transition will look like, I'll let wiser people talk about it some other point. Because that's not what today is about. My heart was coming up here that you would hear, one, that I love you, and that two, I would love your prayers and support as we go and share the love of Christ with people who desperately need it, who have lost so much. My heart's there now. And I know that your prayers will go with us as we take the love of God that we sing about and preach about and talk about and share it with those who desperately need to hear it. Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus continued going around all the towns and villages, teaching them in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. I am not the shepherd they need, but I know who that is. And I am willing to do the work. My prayer is, I'm not the last. From this church, to go and to take what we know is true and right and good and that we know a Savior and that we would be willing to go to wherever God calls. And we would have the faith and the courage and the love to say yes. So again, I thank you for all the years. I'm around for a while longer, so you don't have to run up right here and rush me or anything. It's okay. Um, I actually won't be around much this week for my father's uh, memorial, my father-in-law's memorial service. I have to go, I have a role in that. But you can call me, text me, call or email me or whatever. And I'll be around for months to come and we can sit down and talk about it. But I'm grateful to be a part of a church who sees sending out its people as vital to the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love you. Don't you look forward to the day that all of our Sundays are characterized by a hunger for more Scripture, strategic, intentional fellowship, intentional, focused prayer, testimonies, ministry, worship in spirit and in truth, and the mission. Let's do what it takes to be more of a New Testament church than ever before. Would you bow with me just a moment? As you bow, I want to just ask you this question. Don't you want to be a part of that church? Don't you want to be a part of that church family that's seeking to be a New Testament church in these ways? This this got a long way to go and a lot of room to grow, but seeking to be there and on the move to be there. Listen, you can be a part. Jesus Christ came to this earth to meet every requirement that needs to be met for entrance into heaven. He met every requirement. He checked every box necessary to grant entrance to heaven. He did that in your place. 
And then he went to the cross, and there on the cross, God the Father judged sin in Christ on the cross until sin had been paid for. So listen, everything that needs to be done for you to be part of the family of God and spend eternity in heaven with God has already been done. Not by you, but by Christ. And all of the sin and iniquity and transgression that you are guilty of here this morning, all of the ways that you've blown it and failed, all of that's been paid for this morning. Not by you, and it doesn't need to be paid for by you. It's been paid for by Christ on the cross And on Sunday morning, after he died on that cross, he rose from the grave bodily and victorious over death, over hell, over the grave, over fear. You can join him in that victory by just repenting of your sin here this morning. Turn it away from your old affections, your old attitudes, your old actions, your own self-righteousness, your own good works. Turn away from all of that. Turn loose of all that. Release your grip on all of that and turn to God through faith in what Jesus did for you. Rely fully, totally, and wholly upon what Jesus Christ did on that cross and call upon His name this morning and you can be saved. For as many as believed in His name, as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to be called children of God. You can be a child of God this morning part of the family of God this morning. And you can have peace with God this morning. If you want to be a part of a family like that, just turn from your sin and put your trust in Him. Call upon His name until He gives you assurance of your salvation. And I want you to join me in praying for our church that we'll be awakened, that we'll be revived, that we'll be unified, and that we will look more and more like that New Testament church as we move forward together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for a picture of what the church should look like. Not on our television screens or our computer screens or in our world, but in your scriptures. Help us to look to the sufficiency of your word for what we should be and who we should be and how we should be. God, mold us, make us Transform us into your purpose, your plan, your picture of your church. A bride, white, spotless, pure, clean, being sanctified and made ready for her groom. And God, for that person here this morning who may not be part of the family, who needs to turn from their sin and needs to put their faith and their trust in you and needs to claim your righteousness and give you their sinfulness, I pray that you would give them the courage this morning to do that, to call on your name. And I pray that you would give them the boldness and the courage not to leave this building until they tell someone that they trust what you've done in their heart and in their life this morning. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We praise you for Jesus Christ alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.